Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. Episode 102, 125th of a second, Yugoslavia, where Wade photographed war. In Mostar, a city in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there's an exhibition of images from the war. A series of photos depicts the moment that a UNICEF volunteer tried to save someone on the town's famous bridge who had been shot by a sniper, was shot herself and waited, knocked by the force of the bullet into the gutter along the edge of the bridge where the sniper could no longer see her. Finally pulled to safety in the last image, she sobs, a bulletproof vest having protected her. I wanted to know who had shot these photos and what brought him to Bosnia. So I found him in Dubrovnik, Croatia, where he founded a museum, War Photo Limited, that exhibits war photographers' work. Wade Goddard came to Yugoslavia in the 90s specifically to photograph the war and didn't leave. So I asked what it was like to travel in a place that no longer exists and hope to find out, like you too, is there a time for keeping your distance? Can you describe what you look like for the people listening? That is a strange question to start with, yes. Um, what do I look like? Uh, very handsome, still <laughs> relatively young man, clean cut. Hairdos have changed over the years. Now it's just grey. I'm imagining long hair at some point. Um, not so long. Uh, there was one short period of long hair, but um, it's just travelling. I was travelling too hard to look after. <laughs> you know, so it's mostly been short hair. Um, white. Scottish, New Zealand background. Not so tall, not so short. Pretty thin. Perfect. That's me. So next, can you um, describe where we are, starting with some things that we can see around us here? Well, at the moment, we're sitting in my very messy office which is full of boxes of images and uh, tools on the table and old out-of-date stereo equipment that's not in use and TV screens that are also not in use, uh, printers and computers and junk and folders and bookwork and all that nonsense that goes with running a business. Um, Boxes of books that are for sale, Um, that's it. Walls are grey like the rest of the rest of the gallery with some some images on the wall some on the floor great great description <laughs> I was really interested in um, challenging a photographer to uh, paint pictures with words you know <laughs> you're, you're good at it so can you explain more about what this place is um, the uh, exhibition center was initially uh, thought of and, and set up between myself and a, and a friend of mine who, who's backed and financed the entire project um, with the idea of bringing 
photojournalists work straight from them directly to the public. This is a concept that probably I had more to do with the idea of cutting out the middle man who is mm. the, the newspaper or the, or the magazine that often heavily edits to an extent where the story is no longer that of the photographer mm. that was actually there, the mm. one where we should really be trusting to tell the story. Mm. But then becomes, you know, the politics of the, of the magazine or newspaper with which has been shown. So that was really the beginning concept, and we've managed to stick pretty tightly to that mm. as we go. Now we're up to our fourteenth or fifteenth year of season, um, and over those years, we've we've really held quite a few shows mm. um, from areas like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq. Uh, Central African Republic, Congo, uh, Uganda, um, Israel, uh, Gaza, Lebanon. Um, of course, the former Yugoslavia. We've had quite a few different exhibits from different aspects of the former Yugoslavia uh, and more to come. So the, the main concept is really to bring the photographer's work directly to the public. So it's a... It's the photographer's edit. Mm. It's the photographer's uh, uh, introduction to his show. It's his story. He's telling the story as it should be told. Um, and then the public, uh, you know, had this opportunity to see what photojournalism is really about mm. and, and how it should be, you know, seen or presented or, 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 or consumed. Mm. Um, which I, I personally find it. Uh, incredibly fulfilling not only as a as one in the position to have the honor to produce or help photographers get this work to the pub public but you know to actually view it you know, mm. to to see the stories that i know a, a lot of these photographers are not i've known over the years as i worked with them in the past uh, and you know to 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 see to see them actually have the opportunity to finally Mm. tell the story mm. the way that they thought it should have been told you know I can see uh, from the reactions of many of them that you know they, they really enjoy the process themselves and they're very happy that it's uh, finally there the way they wanted it that raises a whole host of questions <laughs> but I want to nail down a few more details before we get into that um, so why Dubrovnik Croatia and we're, we're right off the main street so along with that how did you end up in such a prime spot, too? Um, well, that all falls down to, to my, my partner, uh, Frederic Andres. He's the, uh, the sole investor and backer of this project. And um, it, all, it all began when he purchased the space. And um, then I've been friends with, the, friends with the man for some time. And, and then, you know, we got talking one day and, and he sort of come up with this idea, you know, I've got this amazing space in Dubrovnik. Let's do something. Let's let's make a museum. Let's let's work together. And and it grew from there, you know, and then it was we defined exactly what and how and how it should work and what we should show and and stuff like that. My expertise came in because I was a photographer myself during the former Yugoslavia. And um 
I had the the honor of knowing uh, the world's renowned photographers because you know I worked with them, traveled with them, <laughs> ate and slept with them, and compete competed competed with them. So um, it worked well. I worked together. We worked together well, and it's still going strong. That's fantastic. So clearly, this place had an effect on you, former Yugoslavia. Well, oh, very much. What's yeah. that story? How did you end up here? Uh, that's a long story. I mean, it, it starts in, in provincial New Zealand on a sheep and cattle, <laughs> sheep and cattle country. Um, I was a high voltage electrician, um, but prior to even that, I was in love with photography. Yeah, and um, always followed it, liked it. I saw some documentaries about. Uh, Saharan wars in the desert that inspired me to like or have more interest in international uh, news and documentary photography rather than another aspect. I spent my youth uh, taking pictures and chasing girls like anyone else. Um, after I finished my license as an electrician, I decided that it was good idea just to do some traveling. I ended up in London like every New Zealander does. <laughs> and then I um I actually sort of I'd sort of sort of kind of put photography aside for a while and and London life was very difficult. Uh, it, I wasn't loaded with money, so it was a lot of work, working all the time and not really enjoying much. A few trips to Europe here and there, but I got sort of sick of it to be honest. And I picked up a magazine in a, in a, in a, in a store one day, and it, it was in 1991, and it had uh, pictures on the cover of Croatia at war. And I brought this magazine, and I read every single word that this photographer had written about his photo story about uh, uh, eastern, eastern Croatia in the north. Wait, who, who was the photographer? Um, René Schiltz was his name. Yeah, he's he's no longer with us actually. And um, at the end of the article, he'd placed his telephone number, which was a very strange thing wow. to do. Wow! Yeah, a very strange thing for a photographer to do. But he left his phone phone number there, and after a month of yes, no, no, yes, I will, I won't, will I? How stupid is that? Yes, I will. I called the guy, and kind of. Awkwardly explained that I really liked his work and uh, I would like, I would really like to have a coffee with him one day, and and he agreed, and for for some reason he agreed, and and actually we became friends. This was actually in nineteen, yeah, ninety one, the winter of ninety one, and we became friends over the winter of ninety one, and saw quite a bit of each other in in our spare time, and then the war broke out in Yugoslavia and Bosnia in nineteen ninety two in April, and he said to me, listen, if this is what you want to do. Let's go. So what do you mean, let's go? And I'd actually saved a bit of money on the, had a bit of money on the side by then. He says, let's go. Let's get in the car and let's drive to first to Slovenia, then Zagreb, and we'll go to Bosnia. I said, okay. And uh, and off we set. There was another photographer that joined us from Britain. I can't remember his name. And we went. Uh, we drove all the way. And we, we got on the ferry and, and got off the other side and uh, we ran out of gas in the middle of the motorway and wasted three hours walking, finding, hitchhiking to gas stops to fill up the car. It was a bloody nightmare. But eventually we got to, to Slovenia, to Ljubljana. 
he had a, a friend, girlfriend, in in Ljubljana, and um, unfortunately, we had to spend another two or three days there until he was satisfied before moving on to Zagreb. Um, in Zagreb, we met more photographers and journalists uh, and spent a few days in Zagreb getting organized and finding out what was going on and where and how to travel. And uh, so we, we ended up picking up two or three more photographers with another car. So then we were two cars, and I think there were six of, six of us. And we, had, we decided we were going to Mostad. And in order to do so, we actually had to head immediately to the Croatian coast because the coast was cut off further south and then we would have had to take a ferry we would have had to crawl down the Croatian coast around what was the Kraina zone which was occupied by the Croatian Serbs at the time so we had to make a huge detour and we would take for forever to get down there and just before there's a turn to go to Rijeka in the north of the Croatian coast or to continue and head to to the middle of the Croatian coast is that we were stopped in a gas station and uh, filling up with gas and this black BMW pulls up and this guy jumps out of the car full black uniform sunglasses very cool very scary and he's filling up with gas but he hears us all speaking in English you know so he introduces himself and he's a, an Australian mercenary and asked us what we're doing and, and, and what we're about and we explained to him that we have to go here to get all the way down to the coast so we can go to the cross the ferry to the peninsula park and then all the way around finally to split to get further into Mostar. He says, I'll help you guys out. I've got police badge, I've got military badge, I've got as many badges as anybody ever needs. I can take you through the military zone and cut, you know, five hours off, off your travel. And then he said to me, you know, you're the New Zealander, jump in the car with me, brother, and um, you guys follow. So I'm sitting in the front seat of the car. He has his very good-looking secretary in the back seat, which is also dressed in black uniform and armed to the teeth. And we drive all the way down, and then he starts telling me all these amazing stories, which are just horrific, horrific stories of his combat missions and, and stuff that he'd done, and torture and maiming and ambushes and killings and stuff, and it just got more and more dark, deep, and ridiculous. But this time I'm feeling a little bit nervous and a little bit scared that this guy's actually just a crackpot. And, and, that. and then we stopped in some small village somewhere and he says, I have to stop here, I have to see somebody. And he said, oh, okay. So he walked into this small hotel on the coast and as he walked in, the whole place just erupted. All the chairs went flying and everybody jumped to their feet and said, Klokan, you're back. Klokan is a Croatian word for kangaroo. <laughs> So, you know, and then all of a sudden, all those stories he's been telling me all became true. And uh, I thought, okay, he's well known. He is, he is who he says he is. And after that, we continued to the ferry. And uh, the ferry had a line of cars waiting to cross, which would have probably taken three days, at least three days of cars waiting to cross this ferry. We did not wait. He took all of us to the very front with his multiple police and military police badges and said, we're on next. And he got us straight across the ferry 
And then when we got to the other side, he came up and says, OK, I'm going to leave you now, but wait, I have a present for you. And he opened the boot of his car and uh, handed me uh, a flak jacket, you know, for, for a shrapnel jacket. He says, I hope it serves you better than it serves the guy that I was just at his funeral in Zagreb. And I said, well, I hope it does too. Thank you very much. Because you know, I was poor, I didn't have... I didn't have protection, and actually a lot of the guys they were with also didn't have protection and were very jealous at that point that I was a, the greenhorn who'd never done this before, travelling with these experienced guys, and I was the only one with the jacket now. So we continued on and made our way just south of Mostar. At this time, Mostar was completely surrounded by the Yugoslav National Army. Inside the town of Mostar, were, uh, the town was slightly split, um, Croats and Muslims on one side of the river uh, fighting against uh, Bosnian Serbs who were backed by the Yugoslav army. And the Yugoslav army was mostly at this point sitting around the high ground and shooting into the town with anti-aircraft and artillery and mortars. And we negotiated with a commander, Croatian Bosnian Croat commander on the other side of the, of the hill that we wanted to go into this town. There must be a way in, you know. There must be a route in, and there was. There was a goat track. He took us to the top of this hill, and we had to wait around until it was, in his words, it was dark, so there's dark enough that they can't see us from the other side and shoot us with anti-aircraft, but not too dark that we fall off this goat track that we're going to drive down. And... Um, sitting up there for hours waiting for this perfect light or darkness drove my friend Rene Schultz crazy you know. um, and the commander came up to him pulled him aside and said to him listen you seem to be the the leader of this group you should know that I lost three soldiers on this road last night from anti-aircraft just so you know you know it might be that there's no incident there might be that we're have some trouble. And Rene, for some reason, got a very bad feeling and decided after traveling all that way that he wasn't going in. And I said, well, I'm not coming all this way and not going in. So we actually just took one car in. I think there was five of us at that point. And the five of us decided to go in and left him there. You know, he traveled. I couldn't believe it. You know, he went all this way and he didn't want to go down. But in unspoken photojournalist rules that if somebody has a bad feeling you have to respect it and accommodate it because instinct is probably one of the strongest things that keeps most of them alive. So we went in, there were no incidents whatsoever, nobody, nobody shot at us getting into the town and they put us up in a empty hotel that was being guarded by a couple of soldiers and we were f basically free to roam around the town for as much as we liked you know sometimes they so they'd, they'd give us a soldier so that we wouldn't step in the wrong place or get shot by snipers that were you know they know where the snipers are shooting from and which areas are, are relatively safe and which are not i think we spent a day or two in there before the rest of the crew decided they had enough and says, OK, let's go. And I'm like, wow, I haven't done anything yet. 
really even take any pictures. What? What? I'm not going. So I stayed by myself. They left. I stayed with my two soldiers in the hotel. Learned the city a little bit more. I think uh, four or five days later, some Croatian photographer came in with a with a German uh, journalist and a Croatian radio journalist. They came in. They were spend the day with me, hanging out around this town. And they left as well, and I still wasn't ready to leave. But they came back in the following day without uh, the, the German reporter. And I said to myself, maybe if I don't go out with these guys, I won't go out at all. So I decided that uh, I'll try, I'll go, I'll go out. And the, Cro the Croatian photographer that I went out with turned in, in, in time became my best friend this is my best friend today and the two of us traveled around Bosnia for three years in circles in various different cars covering uh, what we could from Bosnian Muslim Bosnian Croat side and that was that was my university of photojournalism the Bosnian war uh, that's incredibly well told also so, let's pick one photo of yours that you uh, that resonates with you somehow, and can you describe it? Um, we'll start with one. We'll have time to talk about more. But well, rather than one photo, it's more it's more one situation. I mean, I I took lots of photographs in the situation, but it's the situation that resonates more than anything else. Um, it, was it the UNICEF volunteer? Or no. no. No, 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 it okay. wasn't even in Mostar. Okay. Um, uh, I was in Zagreb when we heard that Srebrenica was under attack and falling. And it was already afternoon. And... Um, I was at this time stringing for Reuters and they asked me to go to Tuzla which is not a short distance to travel and um, I got an armoured car but I had to wait for a satellite telephone at the Zagreb airport that was being flown in from London so at midnight the flight came in I took a satellite telephone and I drove and I didn't stop driving I drove for 24 hours non-stop Stopped to pee, stopped to buy water, stopped to eat something maybe, but I just drove, drove, drove. And it took me 24 hours over mountains of s snow and mud and checkpoints and different armies and all kinds of stuff. And I managed finally to get into Tuzla. Again, it was night, almost midnight. Um, but the next day, when we got up before the sun and went to the UN base where thousands and thousands of Srebrenica refugees had already arrived. They were being bussed, women and children, bussed out of Srebrenica by Serb forces to the front line and then rebussed to um, the UN base. Some of them had arrived through the night. We arrived there early in the morning, just as the sun was breaking. Fields were full of women and children sleeping under blankets, but as they awoke, and they rose and they started waking up. They started to cry. And I think there was thousands of people. And thousands and 
people cry and the sound and the and the, and the feeling of being surrounded by this this pain of sorrow this anguish you know what the you know the you know the atmosphere when you go to a football match well it's the inverted atmosphere of that um, I photographed for until maybe nine o'clock in the morning or ten o'clock in the morning I just couldn't anymore um, and all these women and, and children were crying because they knew what happened to their men they knew that their men were not going to be seen again they knew it from the beginning um, that 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 experience was probably one of the one of the strongest ones that still sits with me today that that it, that you can feel pain and, uh, from thousands of people like that that was very it was hard to it was hard to work you know it was hard to shoot it was it became robotic you know crying frame focus shoot move shoot but it was it was a difficult difficult thing to shoot and over the days you know it, uh, their suspicions of course that all their men had been killed were more and more verified as more and more people arrived and then there was a convoy of those who had escaped by foot and fled by foot some men some boys as well arrived by foot over the mountains they had huge casualties lost a lot of people on the way I photographed a 12 year old boy that looked like a man already exhausted boots that were too big for him Kalashnikov that he could hardly carry and I could see that he had seen things that most boys should never see or most people should never see in a lifetime so that's probably the one of the times that resonates with me the most you know there's a few pictures that come to my mind in that that, that I that I photographed that I remember um, but when I look through my archives or at the negatives you know there's there's images in there that I just completely forgot that I'd taken so that's the strongest one one of the strongest ones for me there are other incidents as well killings and, and, and stupidities that happened that are equally as strong but I think Sabrina refugees was probably the most one of the most painful How do you play the role of a war photographer? I mean, you must have felt incredible pressure to be involved somehow and help, or uh, when you see suffering like that, like, how do you keep shooting photos and not doing something else? You know what I mean? Well, it's... it's uh, it's not really a role that's actually played. I mean, it's you're there for a purpose. Why you what, what you choose? Why you choose that purpose is changes from one photographer to another. But you're there for a purpose. You're there to document what is going on. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that will shed light 
on a situation or, or bring people to pay attention, take an interest in that situation. That's your job. Um, it's your. It can be your your security in the sense that uh, emotionally, but if you don't, if you're not involved with the story, at least for me, if you're not involved with the story, or if I'm not involved with the story, I find that the the images suck. Mm. You know, I think it's it's necessary to be involved with those that you who you're documenting or photographing in order to to get close enough to to be able to express their situation through your images um, uh, Robert Kappa said if your photos aren't good enough you're, you're not, not close, close enough, enough. Uh, yeah but I don't think he meant that by distance either you know? yeah, yeah 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 although yeah. he was a fan of shooting wide angle uh, he meant that by you know, if you're not close enough to the story, your pictures are not going to have the same effect. I think you need to be close enough to the story. If you get too close, you'll get burnt. Mm. Well, th that's what I'm interested in. The how do you navigate that line? Well, yeah. it's it's uh, you learn as you go. What you can what you can take personally and what you can't. Uh, sometimes you're more sensitive than others. Uh, after I had my first child, I, I was in Kosovo. I mean, immediately after I had my first child, I was in, in, in actually in northern Albania uh, photographing Kosovo refugees coming out of Kosovo. And I was much more sensitive to mothers and children. And, and, and I'd already been working that, that story for a year and seen a, a lot of the... the the misery that went and hand in hand with that story, so it wasn't wasn't a story that was new to me. But you know, immediately after my child was born, which was like March '99, so I'm talking about it's January '99. So in January '99, um, I actually did literally fall apart mm. with a camera in my hand, mm. with women and children starving and hungry and frightened and in front of me um, and I had to I had to take a you know a break I took the rest of the day of a break I just couldn't do anything anymore but the next day I was back at it um, so you know everybody is individual different people deal and process this different ways uh, some drink some drug some some may even look to God. I don't know any of those ones. Um, but yeah, it's 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 something that you personally have to navigate, you know, and you have to remember why you're there. You're not there on holiday. You're not there. You're you're not there as a as an aid worker either. There are aid workers there that their job is to distribute aid or distribute medical attention of course if something happens and you're the closest one there and you are you you're the only one that can help them that's that then it becomes your job but um, you know, if you're dealing with 20,000 refugees pouring over the border you know there's aid agencies that are going to deal with shelter and accommodation and and medical care 
Mm. It's not your job. You shouldn't be involved in it unless you know it falls to you and there's n- because there's nobody else around. Um, so that's you know have to remember why you're there. What is your purpose? Mm. You know, otherwise you're just in the way. Mm. Going back to what you something you just said before, how exactly do you get involved in a story? What does that mean? Are there certain uh, steps you take to become involved? I don't know. I think you just choose to choose to take an interest. Um, you know, I, I came I came to this region in the first place, thinking that I would only be here for a month. Mm. I had 400 pounds in my pocket when I arrived, and I thought, when that runs out, I leave. Mm. You know, I came for a, for an experience of of something that I always wanted to do, and to see if I could actually do it. Um, I never left, and I got involved. I chose to got to get involved, and I got involved. I got involved. I learned as much as I could as fast as I could about everything that would needed to be learnt and you know it took years mm. and years and even now today I look back on t- particular situations or stories that happened within Bosnia or in, within Kosovo and I may have a completely different perspective about the same event that I witnessed that 20 years ago. Mm. Um, so it's a continual learning process. Now, war is definitely not black and white. Uh, there's always this grayness about it, that um, and this thing, truth. Truth is a fickle, is a fickle thing. And what is true for one side of the story uh, can be completely untrue for the other side. You know, and to find, to dig through all these people's what they believe is true and actually find the, the truth of it all sometimes we never do you know? mm. but um, it has an effect it has an and uh, you know, I was as a as a young man teenager even very uh, incredibly positive about the world and its population and uh, the infinite amount of things that could be achieved and the, the goodness of it all. Today I would say that I've slipped off the pessimistic scale well into the jaded range and um, I just don't see that nice sparkly future that I saw when I was a young man. You know, Look at the events recently today. There's so much false flags and false news and false this and false that. And, and it's 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 all about making money. Shoot some missiles and make some money for someone. And it's not about people and not about places. It's just about money. And um, I think when you look back, most of the wars were just about that anyway. You know, there's no such thing as spreading democracy or the rest of the catchphrases that they try to sell us industry off to make it look heroic and humanitarian mm. it's anything but humanitarian mm. when you're photographing how do you choose what to shoot and what not to 
do you just try to get everything or no what's um, the process there it's uh it's a it's everyone has i guess their own process i mean um that's that's your 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 artistic influence kicking in you know how you want to present this this particular moment this one twenty fifth of a second how is it going to be framed and which you know angle and lights and what and then that's 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 what makes you an individual as a as a photojournalist you know, mm. how you choose that choose the infinite amount of options to to capture that split second are there things that you don't photograph like there's things that you don't send to the publisher mm. because you know they just won't be published mm-hmm. but there are some things that I didn't photograph because I thought I just don't want to have that picture are there some things again that were equally almost the same that I photographed and said well, photograph it because it's there mm. I'm thinking of the um, series on the UNICEF volunteer mm. uh, in Mostar and one of the later ones I saw it in Mostar in the museum mm. above the bridge and she had tried to save or tried to help mm. an injured woman under sniper fire and you had a series of that whole operation and then her sitting with the soldiers that saved her yeah. shell shocked and I just imagined you sitting there, and what's going through your mind, you know? I knew the girl. Yeah. So, when I was photogra- when when I was actually photographing her the entire time, she was telling me to piss off. Okay, that that's what I'm curious. Like she's saying, Wayne, piss off with your bloody camera and get me out of here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't you stop taking bloody photos and get get me out of here? And. <laughs> we we assured her that the safest place for her to be at that moment was where she was. Don't move. The sniper can't see you at the moment. Mm. If you move down or up the thing, the sniper can see you, which was proved by the UN guy who tried to sneak up the side and he got shot at. Mm. And then we waited for 40 minutes for them to turn up with smoke grenades. Yeah. And, um, you know, the entire time she was, get me out of here, get me out of here. But... She proved to herself that it was not a safe thing to do because if she hadn't gone and rescued, tried to rescue the woman that was shot in the head in the first place, she wouldn't have been shot in the back. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of nerve-wracking, you know. You know the person, and you know that you can't do anything about it, and she's only three metres away mm. in a ditch. Yeah. And you just, you, you know, if the sniper's just waiting for you to do that. Right. And that's, that's how the snipers worked in, in Bosnia. They often shoot a kid in the leg in Sarajevo in, the, in Sniper's Alley, yeah. just waiting. Now, who who can stand the kid screaming in pain in the middle of the street when there's, you know, 20 or 30-odd civilians standing around just carring from sniper fire behind a building? And the sniper's waiting for one to go out there and rescue. Yeah. So, I mean, she understood well, yeah, in the well, end that this was the safest thing to do, but at the time, you know, she was pissed. Yeah. So what does she think about that series now? I don't know, because I haven't seen her since, you know, I left Monster after that, I came back, but she didn't see any of the publications or anything, and I, I, I don't remember seeing her 
since then, and I haven't ever caught up to her again in Mostar. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't really know. It was a very valiant thing that she tried to do. And if she didn't have a bulletproof jacket on, it would yeah. have been the last valiant thing she tried to do. Yeah, you wrote that the yeah. bulletproof jacket had a hole in it. One of those ones. It's got ceramic plates in the, in the chest and in the back and stop a Kalashnikov bullet at point blank and break your ribs, but the sniper shot was at least six to eight hundred meters, so yeah, easily stop that. So um, the title of my project is The Observer Effect, which is uh, two things, you know, in physics, it's the principle that when you examine something, it changes. If you're looking at a molecule, just the particles of light change it. Or in an interview situation, the person being interviewed is inevitably distorted by the interview process, you know? So I'm curious about how in photography, in your work, that happens. How do your photos change the subjects of your photos, do you think? You know, for me, Bosnia was, or the, or the Balkans in general, a particularly interesting place when it comes to photography uh, compared to what I'm used to, you know, Anglo-Saxon culture. If there was a funeral and you were in the town and someone saw you that you had a camera and you were kind of a journalist or something, they would ask you to come to a funeral. They wanted funerals to be photographed. They wanted the, the moment to be remembered on film. Um, whereas if you turned up to a, a funeral in, in New Zealand with uh, massive cameras like we had in those days, you know, they'd probably beat the shit out of you for being insensitive. Right, right. So, but here, here was a lot different. Um, and even at the beginning of the, the Bosnian War, you know, we were invited and, and, and encouraged to do and go and be wherever we wanted to do and whatever, with as much help that they could supply. You know. um, they were very keen to, to tell the world their story and that they were certainly the victims of, a, of an aggression. That changed as time went on and that after, after three years, it, of being a victim, they were still a victim and nobody seemed to give a shit internationally. So the, the atmosphere of that did change, but um, most of the time we were really quite welcome. How, how it affected them, I, I, I guess if you know, if, if I was photographing some poor refugees that had just you know, lost everything, their, their, their house, their home, mem family members, you know, even their sit town that they were born in. I think, you know, perhaps they felt that they hadn't been completely forgotten, mm. uh, that there was someone there taking the slightest bit of interest in their situation. Um, I certainly think it did 
did them more good than than harm. Uh, not always, of course, but I remember I, I, I photographed working with um, the same German journalist working on a, a, a larger story about um, rape camps and the raping of of detainees and uh, I photographed a convinced the 16 year old girl in Bosnia to let me take her portrait her story had already been recorded of her what happened to her she was put in a rape camp and raped for weeks on end by soldiers and um, I convinced her that you know it was for wouldn't be wouldn't be published locally at all anywhere in the former Yugoslavia it was going to be published uh, in a book in German and possibly in a in a Time magazine piece which it was and then a local newspaper in uh, Croatia copied the story and stole the picture out of the literally took a photograph of the photograph in the magazine and published it locally you know I was so pissed I was so pissed I mean I'm sure she she actually never ever saw it because she was in Bosnia and the still war was still going on um, but you know I'd given this girl this her word that it wouldn't be published locally and, and the local newspaper just stole the copyright and stole the image out of the out of a magazine and published it themselves in their own newspaper so yeah promises promises um, but I think for most of the time I think most of the time they're, they're not being forgotten you know they have the feeling that they're not they haven't been completely forgotten but it's just a photo Okay, so now I can circle back to something you said at the beginning, that this museum gives photographers a chance to tell the story they want to. I want to hear what challenges you face uh, like that, you know. You get all this material on the scene and then you surrender it to other people that make the decision of how to present it, right? And it gets edited so far down compared to what you've put into it and what you long to communicate with it. Can you give some examples of how that process happens? Um, well, it really depends on 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 who for whom you're working for. You know, if you're working for for a daily newspaper like the New York Times or something, then um, and remember, we used to work on film. Right. Today's digital age is completely different. Uh, we worked on film, and it took eighteen minutes or six minutes minimum to send one image over a satellite telephone. Yeah. So editors didn't get bombarded from me by hundreds of images. <laughs> right. They would call me up and say, we want more to choose from. Right, right. You know, and it's <laughs> the, way the deadline there is 6 o'clock, which is midnight here. And, and, and So I would go out in the day and work. I was generally working with a New York Times journalist. And we'd say, I'd be working the journalist story. So the journalist were doing a story about this particular thing, or let's say we did a story about... We found uh, 21 bodies in a village that were massacred the night before. Um, I would supply a story that was, of that extent, quite a few more images. But I knew which one was the one that we're going to choose. Mm. I know what's, this gonna, what's, what's, what's the main image for the story. I didn't mm. even need, need I've seen them 10. Yeah. But I know it's going to be that one. Yeah. 
And you know, and then on some days they they would only I'd send them only I'd shoot four rolls of film, but I'd send them only four images, right? Because I have to edit and scan, and you know, it's, it took it took forever. You scan an scan an image that takes five or six minutes write a caption that's another three four five five minutes and then you know double check the place names and all of that and then put it on a, a color correcting and do, 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 do all of this stuff you know it's 20 minutes for one image and then you need to send it that's another uh, some on the old set phones it was 18 minutes the newer ones I think they got the speed down to about six or seven minutes or eight minutes for one file so mm -hmm. You're talking half an hour for an image. Yeah. And then there's a fight with the journalist because he needs to use a sat phone as well. <laughs> maybe there's some other photographers that need to use a satellite telephone, so it's always a battle. And it's already midnight, you know, and they call me up at midnight and say, okay, this is what we've got. Um, uh, we need some more. Send us some more. I said, no. <laughs> what do you mean, no? I said, no. I mean... <laughs> that's the one you're going to use because it's the best image of the, to, to, for the whole story and believe me I could send you the whole roll of film but I'll be here until tomorrow midnight and wasting my time and I need to sleep because in five hours I've got to get it back up again and go back out there um, so I had a constant battle all the time with my editors in New York if you're working for Newsweek or something then you, know, you have one deadline a week mm. which is really cool yeah, which I, yeah. I started doing halfway through Kosovo uh, it was, that was really nice. Uh, wow, I don't have to fire. <laughs> cool, man. I've got stuff, but I don't have to fire. But then you get into the dilemma where your deadline comes up for the end of the week and you've got too many choices. <laughs> right, right. But you still have got a sat phone that only really takes eight minutes to send a picture. You might have already prepared all of those images right. over the week, but still, you know, you're a sat phone. And then you've got a rent Reuters satellite telephone or something like that. And they says, well, we can give you half an hour between here and here, this and this time. So, <laughs> and then you've got to decide again. And you say, oh, is that all you've got? <laughs> and now, you know, now they can, they can, they can send a, a whole bloody uh, memory card in a flash, even through a satellite telephone. So... So it makes more sense now why it would be so gratifying for photographers to have this space to have more control and more opportunity to shape the story. Yeah, that, and you know, a story, it, again, it depends on your work, who you work for. Uh, there are a lot of photographers out there who don't particularly work for anyone. Mm. They work for themselves mm. and they are free to start the story. Um, when they feel they've got a, a, a decent body of work at the beginning, they might send it uh, to their agent, or their agent might send it out. Um, but, you know, it's a story that they keep going back to and back to and back to many times, uh, sometimes over years. And then, you know, they feel after a decent period of time that they have a nice body of work. Hmm. But who's going to publish, you know, 40 images? Right. Nobody. Right. I mean, they have to make a book. <laughs> <laughs> but you know books are expensive to make um, and especially to do it on your own yeah you know? so places like this this gives them a nice opportunity to finally finish putting that story together that they've been working on for all of those years yeah um, they get the opportunity for a decent amount of public to, to see it and uh, you know a hard copy catalogue that goes with the exhibit yeah so finally that book yeah 
So yeah, I think um, I, everyone that I've worked with here in this in this gallery has been incredibly pleased with the the exhibit, the the presentation uh, with the with the book that goes with the, the exhibit, and um, generally most of them are able to to get here for two or three days. Yeah, hang out in Dubrovnik. I don't put any pressure on them to do anything except for enjoy themselves. I don't invite local press for interviews or anything like that. There's no workshops, there's no other hidden agenda. They just come here and sip wine and uh, eat oh. fish for wow. three days and do as they like. So most are happy. That's got to be so satisfying for mm. you. It is, it is. I did a group show once. I did a group. I've done several group shows, but I did this one group show on female war photographers, and they all came. It was brilliant. Wow. And they just had a wonderful time. They spent the whole time swimming. We went took, we hired some boats. Uh, just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> they had a really, really fantastic time. So I've got about three more questions, if that's okay. Um, so... It's a difficult subject to present uh, in a museum. Do you find that people have trouble uh, confronting such a difficult past here? Are most of your audience tourists or oh, yeah. local people? No, a lo a local people very rarely poke their head in, you know. Um, and the woman that has the... The, the shop down the street that sells sandwiches. You know, she was here during the during the local war. Uh, she she can't come in here. She can't see it. It just it just brings back too much pain, and too much memories. So no, it it really uh, our public is definitely the tourist tourist public. Um, you know they come to Dubrovnik. They. Some of them actually know which country they're in. Some of them know that there was a war here, and you know, and there's an interest to see, you know, learn a little bit more about the history um, of of Dubrovnik or of Croatia or of the region itself. Um, I never wanted to stick and do, you know, just what happened in Dubrovnik. For me, it's not right. it's not broad enough. Mm. Um, the, the, our idea was much more orientated to. To, to give, you know, a, a war in general uh, a, a perspective from the photographer, mm. uh, from, from those who, who, who lived it, mm. uh, to show war for what it really is, rather than this Hollywood um, idea that's presented on, more so now on mainstream media, but definitely in Hollywood. Mm. That uh, the good there's good guys and bad guys, and the good guys have got the bigger bombs. Mm. And killing a few people here and there in the name of good is justifiable. Um, so no, it's definitely definitely a tourist. Tourism is definitely yeah the, the people who come to watch to come to see. Well, this gets to. The most important question of the interview, <laughs> which you've already answered to some extent, but how does all this experience change you? You've said that you've become more jaded, but do you become a pacifist as a war photographer? Um, I don't know, again, that's, 
that's entirely up to the the individual photographer. Um, pacifist, I don't know. That I would, uh, I would, I would prefer. That even today, I feel I'm still a crusader. You know, um, it's not my work that I'm putting on the wall anymore, but it's important work from other photographers. But I'm still part of that same uh, drive to to tell these stories. Mm. Uh, they they're just not they're not told. They're not they're not from my hand. But it doesn't you know they're, they're, they're as as irrelevant they're as relevant as they, as if they were from mine. You know, mm. I have that feeling that and uh, that when I organize a, a show from a photographer that you know I'm putting myself into it as well it's, right um, so yeah I'm pacifist no uh, anti-war very much mm-hmm. um, but you know there's different forms of fighting uh, and photo- photography is much more effective than a, than a javelin missile for example you know <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I wouldn't call myself a pacifist at all. Um, I would perhaps crusading on the on the on the path of enlightenment to the re- realities of war. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, war has been such. Uh, it's been it's been it's been sold in such a such a way that makes it look like it's glamorous and heroic and um, the good guys always win and there's bad guys and good guys and it's you know good against evil it's just bollocks mm. it's, nobody wins war not one side of any conflict has ever won you know. There are only losers and suffering and destruction and it's all at the end of all of that death and destruction parties sit down and come to an agreement anyway. Yeah. Um, War is just politics. Heavy-handed politics. So... Did it change me? Yeah, of course it changed me. It changed me dramatically. Um, this whole region changed me. Well, I was going to ask, yeah, what about, how, yeah, what about how, culturally coming from New Zealand? How do you compare it? You know? <laughs> I, can't, I can't compare myself now to what I would be if I didn't come here. I mean, who knows? <laughs> it's an impossible comparison. You know? Did it change me? Yes, but if I didn't come here, it would have changed me. So, I mean, difficult impossible answer to the question yes of course it changed me but in which ways I don't know um, like I said before I'm very, very cynical of, of, of perhaps our western leaders that are very quick to, to jump in and pull the trigger before they've even verified who fired the gas or if there was any gas at all right um, and if there was gas you know Whose interest is it to fire all these 100 and something Tomahawk cruise missiles? Obviously, it's the interest on the guy who produces them. Yeah. Uh, That's the only interest. Uh, If you want to find out what's going on in the world, follow the money. We live in a world that cares only about money. 
and is ruled by money and mm. our elite that lead us are in it for profit and not in for any humanitarian purposes whatsoever so you know the root of all conflict war is all about money follow the money you'll find the reasons um, uh, that's war full of disinformation and blind alleys so last stage of the interview can you uh, you've already told some remarkable stories but can you tell a good travel story it was a good travel story <laughs> no I can't think of a good travel story at the moment to be honest um, that's perfectly fine <laughs> I can, I can, I can, I can say that when you, when you're coming into Sarajevo in an aid plane during the war, you were lucky because it was generally full of aid, pallets of it in the back of a C-130, mm. and you could sit on top of those pallets, on top of the aid, and as you were diving down, about to land, when you heard the ting, 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 ting of the bullets hitting the plane, you knew that they wouldn't come through all of that aid and hit you in the ass. But when you were taking off from Sarajevo, the planes were empty. And the only thing you could sit on was your armoured helmet. And you'd still hear that ding, 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 and bullets hitting the plane as you left. <laughs> That's a travel story. Well, that was perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wade. <laughs> You're welcome. That uh, exceeded my expectations. Um, you're, really good, you're a really good storyteller. I have millions of them, man. Millions, millions of stupid things. Hundreds of millions of stupid things that we did and survived. Thank you so much, Wade, for the work you did and for being such a careful storyteller. I was riveted listening to you. And thank you for the work you do now. The museum is incredible. Everyone listening needs to visit War Photo Limited in Dubrovnik, Croatia. You can find a link on our webpage and on Facebook. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening. tried to at one point but then I just got lazy yeah you might I even tried this okay I was gonna say I even tried this but you know they did the the good story or the good memory and it needs to be it, it, it's told generally in the without any forethought in right. the right circumstances at the right place among the right amount rang among the right people right and it comes and goes like uh, like a breath of wind, and then it's gone. Right. And it can never be retold as well again. Right. And that's the problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.